the late 80s in the NFC was just like the heyday of the pass rusher. Oh, and yeah. Charles Haley was dominant in an era that just, you know, had Hall of Famers galore who played the same position as him. Well, it made the pass rusher what it is today. Like, they laid that groundwork of, like, these are, like, the best that you're probably going to see kind of thing. Yeah, and it was all in one conference. I mean, you had the 85 and late 80s Bears, but you also had Lawrence Taylor and the Giants and then Dexter Manley and uh, Charles Mann for the Redskins. Uh, Kevin Green was playing for the Rams at that time, just, you know, kicking the crap out of people. And then Charles Haley. Yeah. I mean – and he's kind of lost in the shuffle of that 49ers defense because, you know, that was kind of a, a group of really good players. But outside of, like, Ronnie Lott, nobody was, you know, had that type of clout and yeah, name recognition. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Every time somebody brings up LT, I just think of the how bad the drugs must have been in the 80s and early 90s in the NFL. Oh, on yeah. those offensive and defensive lines, they must have just been, like, just like, so much drugs dude steroids and coke yeah like that was that era of the nfl wonder what that combo's like like you know people are like oh man you gotta do coke and shrooms bro you're just like i wonder what steroids and coke is just like uppers and then more More uppers uppers. (laughs) just like i'm gonna run through this brick wall but i'm gonna do it with my face yeah exactly (laughs) you know you know those pcp stories that get over exaggerated yeah those are steroid and coke stories i'm like a hundred percent sure you're right Okay. Everybody, welcome to the Sports Experience Podcast, where we take a look uh, at certain characters in uh, professional sports and discuss uh, things people may not know about them. Uh, Today's subject is former defensive lineman, outside linebacker Charles Haley, and with me today, Dom DiTola, is... Chris Quinn. So let's just dive in, uh, you know, headfirst into... uh, Arguably one of the best pass rushers of his generation and arguably one of the most insane people of his generation. Well, this was interesting. I I saw that he wasn't uh, recruited very highly into college. No. uh And he wasn't a pass pass rusher when he was being recruited. He he got switched to outside linemen or, you know. Yeah, I mean, they kind of played him everywhere. He was just like an athlete, kind of like a late bloomer. Yes. I mean... When you're 6'5", and you're like 220 coming out of high school, and you're eventually 250, you have the size to become a pretty elite defensive player, kind of no matter where they put you, just due to your athleticism. And uh, when he went to uh, James Madison, which is a 1AA school in uh, Virginia, they're usually pretty good. I mean, uh, what's his name was his teammate uh, from the posse for the Redskins, wide receiver Gary Clark. Mm-hmm. So they usually have some, you know. NFL-type yeah. players, but they are a double A program or uh, whatever you want to one say. double a one yeah f fcs championship whatever yeah. pc name they're giving it now but yeah it's not like a, an alabama where you have like 30 people on your team who could go pro but exactly. you maybe have like one or two every like four-year recruiting class type deal and just absolutely tore it up um there was a good story about bill walsh um scouting him he like walked into the scouts meeting and he put on the Charles Haley film, and he's just playing everywhere on the field, just straight up dominating for uh, James Madison. And he's like, this is Charles Haley. He's going to be on our defense next year. And they went and took him in, uh, I believe, the, the fourth, fourth round, round of yeah. the 86 draft. Yeah. Which, it's one of those things where I don't think he would drop that low nowadays. No. But 
it, it's where the NFL kind of changes, where you see a guy that you're just like, well, we can play him throughout our defense. That is so valuable. Yeah. That they they probably take him second round, not necessarily first round, but yeah. Yeah, and scouting, you know, nowadays is way more advanced. You have tape yes. on everybody, like no matter what division you're playing at. So maybe maybe even jumped into the first round if he did all like the national combines and everything like that, because. You look at him and his athletic build and frame, and you go, nowadays, you'll notice this guy. <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll make the skills that they want because mm-hmm. the athleticism is there. I actually saw that the 49ers didn't cut him but dropped him because he had a slow uh, 40-yard dash right off the bat, and then they had him take another one, and he dropped like four or five like tenths of a second off of his 40-yard dash, and they were like, oh, he probably just wasn't even trying. Oh, yeah, and no. like That's um, the kind of guy he seems like. He, he's like, well, I really don't give a shit about this 40-yard dash, so jam it up your ass. Just like, put me on the field. Yes. Watch the tape. Watch the tape. Yeah, just watch the tape, watch what I can do, and I'll be an incredible player. I mean, his rookie year, he was an all-rookie player yes. for San Francisco, and by year three, their Super Bowl-winning team in 88, where they beat the Bengals that year... Uh, on a Montana uh, last-second comeback, he was starting. I mean, he was a valuable member of that defense. Yes, definitely. Just, uh, you know, just go over some stats here. I mean, five-time Pro Bowler, two-time All-Pro, Defensive Player of the Year in 1990. I mean, he was the defensive force in the front seven for San Francisco. Like, there was Ronnie Lott on the back end, and then there was Charles Haley during those late 80s Super Bowl runs. And I'm Correct me if I'm wrong. Was he the first person to win five NFL Super Bowls? So like the current. Yeah. So I I know we can go back to those old Green Bay Packers teams and all these older pre-NFL, you know, games or or world championships. But I'm pretty sure he's the first five-time NFL champion. Yeah, before Brady, there was no one that could touch him. Yeah, Yeah. he had five. Because he uh, was on the San Francisco team. And then we'll get into why he left San Francisco. Yeah, we'll we'll get into (laughs) that story. But he was in the San Francisco team, and then he went to that uh, Dallas team that was so great. And he was a a great, you know, I mean. Deion Sanders had a great quote about him, who was his teammate. He's like, he won five Super Bowls. He wasn't just on the team. I mean, he was starting. Yes. I mean, he was just an absolute wrecking ball. Like, in his first six seasons in San Francisco, the dude had 63 and a half sacks. Which is insane. And let me break this down um, to some of our listeners who aren't really familiar with the NFL as far as, you know, pass rushing is concerned, particularly in that era. The late 80s is where you really saw it because 82, they started actually recording sacks as an official stat. Charles Haley was wrecking stuff in an era where in the NFC in particular, which the 49ers play in, you had those dominant Bears defenses. You had the Giants with a coked-up Lawrence Taylor. You had Charles Mann and Dexter Manley, who we should do an uh, episode, episode on. on. Yeah, Just, you know, same as Lawrence Taylor in terms of drug use and dominance yep. in Washington. And then uh, Kevin Green, um, who I loved growing up as a Steelers fan, but he was with the Rams at that time, just absolutely wrecking everything and Haley was part of that group I mean he's a hall of famer with those guys yeah he I almost mean, he almost has a, a sack per game in that six years and in his postseason he was always productive too it's never like the guy just you know took it down to scotch he just upped his game yeah he yeah. upped his game one of the best defensive players of his era if not of all time that's the that's what the question because of his off-field antics that's what the question keeps surrounding him is would he be looked at 
in a higher light if he wasn't if he didn't have all these shenanigans. And we're gonna get into yeah. those shenanigans. I mean, the Don't guy worry. the guy finished with a hundred and a half sacks for a career. It's if you if you're in triple digits, you're in the Hall of Fame. I mean. And the cool thing about him is, um, as far as football strategy goes, this might bore some of you, this might interest some of you, he kind of became the first elephant position in uh, George Seifert's uh, defense when he was coaching under Walsh, to where because of his size, speed, technique, everything, you not only could play him at defensive end down, you could play him at outside linebacker up, and then you could even kick him on the interior to beat, you know, slower guards, centers, and interior linemen just with his speed. I mean, you could play him essentially everywhere, and he would get to the quarterback and just play solid against the run. That that's something that I don't necessarily uh, understand as much because I never played football. Uh-huh. But when you see anybody playing multiple positions, I mean, two positions is kind of a, but anything like that where you're just like you can start on the line, you can start back. It's kind of ridiculous. And in that era of players not doing this, he was really lo- the mold that you know set it up. Yeah, and if you have anybody that can play. I mean, now a lot of base defenses are based in nickel and, you know, extra defensive backs. But, like, at that time, if you have a guy who can dominate in a 3-4 or 4-3 alignment, that's just a cornerstone for your franchise. Yeah, that was the thing. He wasn't just doing good. He was dominating. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine what it was like for the quarterbacks to be like, oh, shit, we're going against the 49ers this year. Like, Or, or just like a center. And uh, oh, I think Ronnie Lott was talking about um, how they w- what they would end up doing is they would base their entire back-end coverages around him. Like, wherever he lined up, that's how they would set up their defensive backs as far as what kind of scheme that they were playing. Because, you know, where's he going to line up? Is he going to pass rush? Is he going to defend the run? Like, what's he going to do? What's the matchup with him against, you know, a single single team opportunity, double team opportunity, that type of deal, so. Yeah, because he he creates mismatches and he creates opportunities for other players to – get plays to do everything that you want in a football scheme. And as as many issues as the man had from a mental perspective, he was just like very football savvy and smart. Yes, that was something that I read that he was like his football intelligence was off the like out of the he, he out of the building. He knew what everyone on a specific play was supposed to do on yes. defense, not just himself, not just his specific assignment. And uh, he was very, uh, he was a very passionate individual who would very uh, criticize <laughs> people if they weren't doing the, like uh, Mike Holmgren, uh, famous Packers and Seahawks coach, was uh, the offensive coordinator, quarterbacks coach um, when Haley was in San Francisco, and he said uh, Haley would come into the offensive meetings to learn what offenses were doing because he wanted an understanding of just everything that was going on. Yeah, he wanted a full understanding, oh, and well. that's why he was so good. Yeah, it's not. To, it's not that he was just blessed with so many physical gifts. Yeah, he he made an effort and had the mental part of the game on the field down. Yeah, I was gonna say because pretty much everybody out there in professional football is blessed with physical gifts. Like, yeah, they're all ridiculous athletes. Some of them are slightly more athletic than others, which is kind of ridiculous. But I think where you see players really distancing themselves from other players is really the intelligence and understanding the schemes and understanding exactly where to switch off and exactly where to what your other players are doing yeah and he really understood that definitely to to a t 
Absolutely. And like I said, that can't be uh, overstated. Yeah. Like just an incredible. What a great football player he was. What a great football player. And what a, uh, well, you want to get into it now or do you want to take a break on this one? Let's do a quick break. Uh, This podcast is brought to you by Mental Health. And uh, if you're in your office and you find yourself masturbating in front of a bunch of uh, your coworkers, you might want to look into getting your mental health checked out, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, go to a psychiatrist. They are everywhere. Um, you know, there are services out there. If, uh, if ever the, uh, fancy strikes you, uh, during the work day. Yes. Yes. Please here at the sports experience podcast, we are very pro psychologist and very pro working on your mental health. And with that, I think we're going to get into the craziest stories I've ever read about a pro athlete. So if you'll let me set this up real quick, um, as I alluded to before, uh, 63 and a half sacks in his first six seasons with San Francisco. Um, that should pretty much guarantee you job security with your current employer as an NFL player for as long as you can physically do it. Yes, they, they would be, he would be the defensive captain. He would. You know what I mean? If Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Let's talk about what led to Charles Haley leaving San Francisco before the 1992 season. Uh, some epi- certain episodes that happened uh, while he was in the city by the bay. Um, just real quick, I wanted to say this. If you want to check out more about Charles and his insanity, the book uh, Boys Will Be Boys has a bunch of great stories. I, I, I cannot state what a great writer that Jeff Perlman is. Because not only did he do Boys Will Be Boys, he did The Bad Guys won about the 86 Mets. He did a USFL history. He did a Walter Payton biography. I mean, this guy's a fantastic writer. Jeff Perlman, you are a great person and someone very much worth reading. Yes. Do you want to start with the uh, San Francisco stories and then get into Dallas? I had one yeah. Dallas story that... It's so weird because you can't get these stories confirmed. Well, let's do chronologically, though. Okay. Let's do San okay. Francisco first. So... Uh, we, we recently alluded to uh, masturbating at work. Um, I think these are like the first, when he starts going off the rails, these are like the first stories that you start to hear. Yeah, because the thing about Charles is um, back in the day, I mean, currently he was, you know, just recently, and he's kind of got himself under control, he was diagnosed finally as bipolar. And uh, had extreme manic depression. Yeah, so it was manic depression before. Yes. So they gave him meds, and the meds would kind of keep him under control, but there were days where he just wouldn't take his meds. He'd go on and off, and when he was off, things happened, uh, particularly because of his nature. Um, He would masturbate during team meetings, and not just, like, quietly. No, it was very vocal and very targeted very targeted he would talk about players wives while he was doing it and uh also not just like playing with himself no faking it he would he would bust a nut like full-on masturbating there wasn't you you know how some guys are like oh there's my dick is it a watch what time is it whatever crap no he was full-on masturbating and and teammates faces essentially yeah yeah next to him when they weren't looking like they'd be having a conversation with somebody else and you know Joe Montana turns around and there's a giant black cock in his face. Oh, that was my other question was, how big do you think his cock was? Because he's just fucking wrapping it out eight, nine inches. At least, At dude. least, yeah. Like, I'm sure if someone pissed him off, he gave a few mushroom tattoos. Oh, I'm like, sure. 
Just like, Charles has to stop slapping me with his dick. I swear I'm going to quit. <laughs> like this, let, let me break it down for everyone listening right now. This guy was me tooing his own teammates before hashtag me too was a thing. That's the thing is he was doing these things and out on the football field, you'd be like, oh man, for the opponent, that guy's pretty wild. He's doing it to his own teammates. Well, I had, I've seen interviews and he's talked about this before. And like some of his teammates were like, that's just the guy that he was though. Like not, not the jacking off part. That's not cool or whatever, but he was just like, you know, a verbal assassin. Like yes. he would just cut you in, in, into pieces, talk shit because he wanted to know, because very early in his career, he was winning championships and dominating. He wanted to know if you were down, like if you could take shit. Because if you could take it from him, he was like, this is a ride or die, motherfucker. Because he would talk about stuff that it was so... Like, if your wife got into a car accident, oh, he yeah. would, like, bring that up. If your kid was, like, mentally disabled, he would, like, bring that up. If you had, like, a mole on your cheek... Like, he had no... He no had filter. No, no filter, no boundaries. He, he just went full on, and he associated this with creating a, a better team unit. Which... You know, there was a method to his madness, but his madness was so insane that you're yes. just like, I'm surprised nobody tried to check. Like, the only people from what I've gathered through the research that he really, like, would be, you know, reserved or, like, pay attention around was, like, Bill Walsh when he was there, when he was the coach, but mm -hmm. he left after 88, Joe Montana, and Ronnie Lott. Ronnie Lott was, like, his favorite teammate to play with, and Ronnie could always, like give because he hated criticism bill walsh always used to say to him like and that's what kind of got through to haley he's like uh criticism is like beef jerky it's good for you but it's really tough to take down and he was like okay i get it and ronnie lott you know was almost like an older brother to him because he was so well respected such a veteran leader such a badass on the field that he was like okay ronnie's going to criticize me he's going to do it in private and i'm going to learn the game so i don't need to be criticized Hey, everybody. Just want to take a quick break to uh, let you know that our Sports Experience podcast is brought to you by Angle Studio here, and uh, they're here in Tucson for all your recording needs. So. Well, it's one of these things where you see he has respect and he holds back for a couple of players and his coach, but, man, every other player on that football team, he just rips to shreds. And if you make a mistake, that's the thing about we were talking about how he knows what every other player should be doing. If yeah. you make a mistake, he is fucking torturing like he is just like yelling in your face and like i can't even imagine because i a lot of pro sports that happens you see that with like jordan and they're mm -hmm. like ripping each other for not doing what they need to do but he was he took it to an extreme yes like he took it to another level like jordan seems like the guy who would do it but do it like in practice when yes. the cameras aren't on or like, you know, in a team meeting where it's like, okay, only the teammates and coaches can hear it. But almost in a shit talking, you know, he's kind of like shit, like whatever, not whatever, like I need to do that, but not the way Charles, no. it, it was, he was scary. He put his dick on Matt Millen's uh, shoulder during a poker game. Like, why? Like, this isn't something like the movie Waiting where you just surprise somebody like, look at my wiener. Like, no, no, no. No, this is like, 
borderline sexual assault. What were the other guys' reactions to? They were just like, ah, oh, that's Charles, man. That, that's just Charles. Yeah. He he got two sacks last weekend. Of course you can put your penis in my face. Exactly. Of course you can just drape it on my shoulder. You thwarted that two-minute offense. Let's whip out that cock. <laughs> whip it out, damn it. My, my thing is the GM, the head coach it got it got bad by 91 that's the that's thing. where we want to go with this yeah. is they had to start stepping in because it wasn't like one or two incidents it was like he was doing it all the fucking time and it was and i'm gonna go into a couple of these incidents here it wasn't just whipping out his dick no by like 91 because uh by 1990 ronnie lott was gone ronnie lott signed as a plan b free agent to los angeles the raiders at the time uh joe <laughs> montana by 1991, he had gotten hurt in the NFC Championship game when they were going for the three-peat against the Giants. He was out the 91 and almost all the 92 seasons, and they had replaced him with Steve Young. And that really made him mad. Yeah, and he, he had, had no respect for Steve Young. And since Walsh was already gone by then and Seifert was the head coach, already butting heads. Mm-hmm. So by this point, he had gotten so out of control. There are a couple stories where he allegedly pissed in his backup Tim Harris's uh, convertible because he was jealous of him, even though he was better than him. He just said, I'm going to pee in your nice new car, douche. Well, I feel like in his... See, this is the thing where you can't really get into his mind, but I imagine in his mind, he was just like, I'm laying down the hierarchy here. Like, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm the lead. I'm marking my territory. I'm marking my territory. That's exactly <laughs> where I was going with that one. Like, but, he's just like, I'm the head of this pack. And he, they're just like, we're not a pack, dude. We're a football team. In one of the meetings, apparently, around this time... His uh, linebackers coach was criticizing him for sitting incorrectly in a chair just during a meeting, sitting incorrectly. So Charles got up out of the meeting, went to the restroom, came back with used doo-doo paper with doo-doo on it and threw it at the coach. And then another assistant coach, he went into his office and shit on his desk. Yes. The, I feel like in the later years of his 49er, because he actually comes back and he's a 49er later in his career, yeah. but in these, before he leaves, it, it starts to get into these poop stories. Yeah. And it's so interesting because in the beginning, it's him just jacking off where you're just like, ah, oh, Jesus. And then it really gets into if you say something that he doesn't like, if you do something that he misinterprets even, he's yeah. literally doing something with poop to your... Like, I can't even imagine all the stories that guys just, like, kind of kept to themselves. Oh, totally. They're just like, is that shit in my helmet? Like, th- those are, like, deathbed confessions. Almost. Yes, exactly. Like, you're exactly. just not getting out. Like, look, I killed Jimmy Hoffa, and Charles, he, he shit in my helmet, man. Yeah, like... But uh, so by 1991, there's a great story, too. That year, they're playing the Raiders, and Ronnie Lott's on the Raiders. So Haley, like a little brother, always wants to beat his older brother. And 91 was the first year that the Niners had missed the playoffs since, I believe, 1982. So, I mean, they had been essentially a decade in the playoffs. Yeah. And they lose to the Raiders, and Charles is so despondent after this game because he really wanted to beat Ronnie and kind of show him, like, hey, you know, I'm still, you know, keeping the ship right here. He had a nervous breakdown in the locker room and he punched a glass window with like wire on it and he completely screwed up his hand, 
like just com- blood gushing everywhere. Yeah, cuts the, everywhere. But the a 49ers trainers, because he was so inconsolable, they had to go into the Raiders locker room to get Ronnie Lott to be like, can you calm this guy down? Oh my God, I didn't know that. Dude, I heard the and, story about him punching the window, but not about them going to get Ronnie to so, come and... So Ronnie comes in, he ends up calming him down and they had asked him about the incident and he's like, look man, that's, that's not how I handle things, but why wouldn't you want a guy like that on your team who has so much passion and just like desire to do anything you possibly can to win and to be so upset by a loss like that. Yeah. Like he was like, I understand. Like I get it. I get why he's so mad. So by the time that season ended and the 49ers missed the playoffs because they lost their division that year to the Saints and the Falcons due to a tiebreaker got into the postseason. 91 Falcons would be a good uh Good story to do with uh, Dion and Ryzen and all those oh, guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was that was a fun team to watch. Like, you talk about swag. That team had swag. And yeah. A, and a fat Mississippian as a third-string quarterback who turned into Brett Favre. <laughs> like, he was – I apparently, I was drinking as much as Favre during my heyday. <laughs> <laughs> they, they asked him how he dropped 30 pounds. He just stopped drinking. Yeah. It's like, I didn't want to be fat anymore, Mom. That's why I quit drinking. <laughs> but I moved to light beer. That's when they introduced light beer. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) And that's when Brett Favre's career took off. And this is what I don't understand, though, is after the season, I get why they traded him. I understand why the 49ers felt like they had to trade him. I mean, he had strangled George Seifert by that point. I mean, he was getting in fights with Steve Young, who's like the most pleasant guy ever. Like, you know. There's something to be said about what happens in the locker room. Yeah. spills over onto the field for everybody else. He, he was probably the best pass rusher at that time, but there's something that it breaks in a locker room. And Seifert still regrets not that he traded him, but where he traded him, because this is very important as far as the whole Charles Haley story. Because originally, the Raiders were offering them the best offer. Yes. And f- the 49ers are like the antithesis at this time of the Raiders in terms of how they do business. They're like, no, he's not going to the Raiders, which honestly would have been smart because, or any other AFC team, because you trade him out of the conference, you never have to see him again. Yes. Never. The 49ers, however, get on the phone with Jimmy Johnson, who's the de facto GM in Dallas. The Dallas Cowboys, after the 1991 season, had finally not only ascended from their 1-15 year in 1989, they had pieces in place. That year they lost in the divisional round to the Detroit Lions, where Eric Kramer made it rain footballs for their only postseason win post-Bobby Lane curse. Check that episode out. <laughs> no, seriously, if you ever yeah. watch that 91 playoff game, what you see is Barry Sanders for the first three quarters before he goes off as a decoy, Eric Kramer is just slicing and dicing them in this run-and-shoot offense, and Dallas doesn't have a pass rush. They have good young defensive linemen at that time, like uh, Jimmy Jones, Russell Maryland, Leon Lett, a good veteran leader, but kind of at the back end of his career in Jim Jeffcoat, and with Chad Hennings coming back in from his Air Force enlistment. They're like really ascending but they don't have that one piece but this game shows that they need a pass rush they need a and dominant it's completely pass obvious because the lions don't have a good passing team and they completely cut them up, they, they so. cut them to ribbons yeah. honestly uh willie green color of money chris berman right there had a great game um so anyway dallas offers san francisco a second and third round draft pick san francisco trades him to dallas mind you at this time dallas is an 11 win team i believe 
They just, you know. They had Emmett Smith. They, they were putting these. They had the triplets. I was going to say they were putting these championship pieces together. They just needed a dominant veteran player, particularly one who could pass rush, and the 49ers hand them Charles Haley. Gave it to him. A second and third round pick. This is something I don't necessarily understand uh, with football, the the value of players. Oh, um, I mean, I could get into this a little bit. Yeah. So Jimmy Johnson and um, one of the analysts in Dallas when he first took over, because Jimmy was always about value in the draft and players he was familiar with. Mm-hmm. Like he never wanted to overdraft someone. If he saw somebody he wanted that might have like a lower value from where he was picking, he would always try and trade back. Yes. Because trading really wasn't like a thing by the late 80s in the NFL in the draft. Like obviously you'd have trades, but not like now. Not like with what Bill Belichick was doing throughout the 2000s, just collecting picks yeah. and that kind and of that, thing. And- well, and what he kind of got through that and the Herschel Walker trade was like, look, draft picks are currency. We're going to go to the table. The more, you know, wax you have at the ball, the better, you know, chance you have at hitting a home run. And that's what they did. Yeah. So the draft pick value, he, him and um, uh, I think it was an oil speculator that Jerry Jones knew. I think that's that that was the person. They set up a draft value chart as far as this pick is allotted this many points and so on and so on and so on, and it just keeps decreasing from the first to the last pick. And then the players are given that many points, so you don't want to trade a, dra- a first-round draft pick for a guy that's not going to produce. Yeah, and I mean, since then, you know, the the value has been, you know, updated and sure. things like that, but that was kind of the first thing, and it was great for GMs because they could just look at the chart and be like, okay, I'm not getting screwed in this deal. This seems like appropriate value for the type of, player that I want at this area of the draft. So and then that, they could they could track it then and then go back for like later deals. So if they look at exactly. it and they're like a third round is worth way more than that or less or you know what I mean. That that's this is the first era of tracking that kind of thing. Yeah. That's no. why I think they they really I mean they essentially stole one of the best defenders for a second and third round. I I don't even know who the 49ers picked up. Nobody that uh, I know no. they, I know they traded one for um a wide receiver for the Patriots, um, Vincent Brisby. Um, I forget the other what the other pick turned into, but yeah, second and third round picks. Yeah, and you get a dominant pass rusher, a Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer. I mean, in 1991, their defense was ranked 17th. Mm-hmm. In 1992, guess where their defense was ranked? Number one. Number one. Yeah. And you, you talk to any of those Cowboys players, particularly like Aikman and Smith and Irvin and all those guys. They'll tell you why they took that step from losing in the divisional round to 1992, and it's Charles Haley, specifically. I mean, that guy just brought such a presence on that side of the ball. That's what I was going to say. It wasn't just his play; it was presence. I bet you don't. You nobody wanted to make a mistake with him out there. That he's one of those players, and he's the perfect guy. Even though you know he's a massive shit talker, you have a ton of good young defensive linemen. How are you going to make them better? Watch this guy on the field. Don't pay any attention to what he does in the locker room, exactly. but watch him on the field because you're going to learn a thing or two. Exactly, and he's going to know what you're doing wrong, so if he yells at you, pay attention. And I felt like they really all clicked in. Yeah. He, he, what he, why he left the 49ers, the locker room essentially hated him. In Dallas, they, he was beloved they loved him. Everybody 
was seemed to be a crazy person. <laughs> yes, there were a lot of drugs in that cow, that Dallas Cowboy locker room. There was a lot of stuff going on. And Haley was never like a drugs or a booze guy. No, he, he was wasn't. just like he was just a, a chemically imbalanced person. Yes. Yeah. There was a there's a story about Emmett Smith holding out uh for his oh, contract. Yeah. Can can I get into uh yes, be- you, before we do that? Okay, okay. So I'm setting this up for 1992 and oh, why yes, Seifert made a mistake was because not only in 1992 but 1993 Guess who Dallas plays in the NFC Championship against another double-digit win team in the NFC? Oh, I don't know. Who the... The 49ers. Okay. They went into San Francisco in 92, where the 49ers were heavily favored, kicked the crap out of them. I was going to say. And then went on to win the Super Bowl in 92. 93, they're playing in Dallas. That was the famous Jimmy Johnson in the radio game. And uh, Bernie Kosar actually came in after Aikman got a concussion and uh, gave him the... uh, game icing score but yeah Haley beat him both times yeah and you knew and he's talked about it you know that weighed heavily on his mind like I'm gonna stick it to these bastards oh I can't even imagine how amped up he would get for those games well I mean Seifert's not only the head coach but you had gotten rid of Montana and you had gotten rid of a lot and you're on this completely dominant team with absolute confidence like the Cowboys of that era were mm-hmm. and you go out and just beat him down yeah just absolutely beat him down that's the thing it wasn't the it wasn't a close game and the and the funny thing is you had mentioned it and this is where you know i want to kind of go into it in 93 after they're coming off a super bowl win they start owing two the big reason they start owing two is because emmett smith wants a new contract and he's holding holding out out. he wants barry sanders money and jerry jones is kind of like no no no, i'm not gonna pay you but they end up starting oh and two and this is they lost to the bills in that second game at texas (laughs) stadium and so chris take it away well this is the kind of the kind of i don't even know how to put it the kind of um influence he had in the locker room in Dallas was he was so angry after they lost that game against Buffalo that he literally headbutted through a concrete wall. He like, yeah, I I would love to see pictures of it, but people say he literally like charged and went through a concrete wall. And not only that, Jerry Jones, because he's like the most hands-on owner in professional sports, came down to the locker room. Charles Haley took his helmet. Yep threw it at him, missed by about two feet, and yelled something to the extent of, get our blanking running back back in here. Because he understood then, the value of Emmett Smith. Yeah, and then I think a couple of days later, yeah. the the they were like, all right, we'll, we'll sign Emmett back. I believe that was the first team. I think there have been a couple since then, but that was the first team ever in the Super Bowl era to start 0-2 and, and win a Super And they had to really come back because that year the Giants – under uh, Dan Reeves in his first year, were also very competitive. They had to win a uh, last week game against the Giants at the Meadowlands to, to win go. the division and get the bye. Because if they don't do that, they're going on the road as a wild card, and who knows what happens. I mean, obviously, they could have won the Super Bowl that yep. way, but they made the path that much easier. And they got home field advantage for the playoffs. I was going to say, you that. never know what's, what happens. You know, the what if if they didn't have home field advantage. I just I want to go back to the thought process of not only throwing your helmet at your boss, but the owner of a football team. Like he he is so much above. It's not like your it's not like your coach. It's not like the you know whatever. Yeah. Like he literally like the the not the the not rational thinking that Charles had throughout his entire career is just but you you know what it kind of crazy you know what it kind of is like though is 
because he's that good and that well respected as a football player, despite all the other insane bullshit that he put people through, whenever he talked, when it mattered, not just like shit talking, but like when it mattered, yeah, people listened. People oh, yeah. listened to him. And that's why that Dallas Cowboy team really turned around and became one of the best defensive teams and multiple Super Bowl teams. Because like, when Jimmy Johnson took that team over, it was very young. He had cut every tie from the Landry era. All these guys are young. They're hungry. They're very good. You don't have a guy who with Super Bowl experience. You don't have a guy who's part of a confident organization. Who are you going to ask questions to? You're going to ask questions to Charles Haley. Yep. He might, you know, put his wiener in your face while you're asking said questions, but he's going to answer them and I would, you're going to listen. I would love to hear what Jimmy Johnson has to say about his leadership role and some of the stories because those guys, those are the guys you don't get the stories from. Jimmy Johnson had a great quote because like he was like, "Look, I want this guy, but I got to know." So he started having he started asking the 49ers front office about mm-hmm. him. Then he had all of his players call all the 49ers players and they all said that he was crazy but he was very smart. And Jimmy Johnson said basically, "Oh, he's smart. I can reason with a smart person." Yes. I don't have to pay attention to the crazy. I can at least reason with them. Or he could reason out the crazy. Yeah. It was what he thought. And no. Yeah. But he was that he had that high of football intelligence that it didn't necessarily, well, it did matter, but it didn't spill over, especially in Dallas. He fucking just dominated. Yeah. And I mean, three Super Bowls in four years is testament to the type of player that he was yep. before his back issue started kind of kicking in and uh, him really uh, well, that's declining. When, that's when they started to really start to um, assess his psychological yeah disorder because they were saying that he was manic depressed in that time but it, it, he had manic depression in that time but it turned out he was bipolar so that's why he had the, all these huge mood swings yeah he'd just be as high as possible one day low high low high and nobody could really get a beat on him yeah and try and get him to you know at least play by the rules <laughs> yes at least play by the rules just a tiny bit just that was a just tiny not bit who he was not at all yeah but yeah that's uh that's the great charles haley that is the great charles haley uh make sure you check out boys will be boys um check out his story of wrapping his dick in athletic tape and running naked through the locker room saying he's the last naked warrior yep that's always good um him putting his uh wiener uh next to a desk and top of it uh while his cornerback was sitting in front of him i mean just an absolute peach charles haley yeah, if you were on one of those teams and you didn't see his penis then i just don't were you really there exactly were, were you really there i get you got the ring but did you did you see the cock because that's it <laughs> oh, God. this is the uh, sports experience podcast i'm chris quinn at sequin comedy i'm dom ditola at ditola dominic join us every wednesday and friday And check us out at the Sports Experience Podcast on Instagram. Cool, everybody. Thank you.